0: And we are live. Good evening. Good day, everybody. It's great to be back after a two day break. Welcome to episode six, week two of Ask Abhijit. We have a very interesting week lined up, very interesting uh, discussions. And today's discussion is also very interesting. So before we get into it, uh, just a quick announcement. I have started a new YouTube channel. It's a clips channel. It's called Abhijit Chavda Clips. So I am uploading these individual questions on this channel. So instead of going through an entire episode, you could browse through that channel and look at individual answers to questions that you all have asked. So I have just started this channel. I'm going to keep uploading more and more over there. So I would uh, invite you and welcome you to take a look at that channel. Right. So we have a very interesting session ahead of us today. Artificial intelligence, quantum computing, the future of humanity and all that. And you have asked really, really interesting questions, a whole bunch of questions. I obviously don't have the time to answer them all in these in these 90 minutes, but I have chosen a bunch of questions that will hopefully address the entire spectrum of issues and topics and questions that you all have raised. So let us get into it right away with question number one. So this is by Divisha. Uh, Please tell us what actually the artificial intelligence is. How does it work? Can we develop it within us? If yes, then how what are the three laws of robotics and how will it affect our future? Let's say a whole lot. That's a number of questions within one question. But it's a good way to start this particular session. So what is artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence is a branch of computer science. It, it seeks to create uh, machines that are intelligent enough to be able to perform tasks that usually would require human intelligence. Right? So examples of this is uh, self driving cars. So typically, to drive a car, you need a human level of intelligence to deal with the situations and eventualities in real time. So you need a lot of training and practice to get all the mental patterns ingrained in our in our brain. And then we need to execute this in real time as various things happen while we are driving. So it requires a human level of intelligence. Now, today we are increasingly seeing sophisticated, ever more sophisticated self-driving systems. Uh, the most famous one is obviously Tesla. So this is an example of artificial intelligence. It's a set of computer programs algorithms It's a self-learning system that has reached the level of which which at which it can almost replace a human driver so as of now tesla's cars require you to be present be to be awake and keep your hands near the wheel but it essentially drives itself but it is iteratively getting better so soon enough it will be able to drive autonomously without human uh, assistance or supervision so that's one example Another example of artificial intelligence is uh, surgery. So we are now getting to see robotics and artificial intelligent machines getting involved in minor and basic and routine surgeries. For example, you have this LASIK surgery that corrects the the vision of people's eyes. So we we are increasingly seeing this being automated and being done by a robotic uh, machine. So that's an example of artificial intelligence. Uh, machine translation is another example of uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, The conversion of voice into text is done nowadays autonomously, automatically. In YouTube itself, we can see this, right? So when you replay a video, when you have a video which has already been uploaded, the YouTube algorithm, the artificial intelligence behind it automatically translates the voice into text. Now, as of now, it is not entirely accurate, especially when it comes to non English pronunciations and accents, but it's getting better as we speak. So these are examples of artificial intelligence. These are computer systems that essentially are taking over tasks and functions that require human intelligence. And this is Something that is rather new—it's a paradigm shift. So until now, we have had computer systems that were essentially dumb in nature, garbage in, garbage out. You would program the computer, you would create softwares, bundles of programs and algorithms with routines and subroutines. So the, those software packages could handle a predetermined set of conditions. But now we are finding more and more systems that learn autonomously. In an unsupervised manner that deal with uh, all kinds of eventualities as they as they learn. So that is in brief what artificial intelligence is. What are the three laws of robotics? Well, that's something that uh, the science fiction writer and scientist Isaac Asimov came up with in the 1950s onwards. So that there is a bunch of laws now. Instead of repeating them from memory, let me just share that on the screen. So let me do that. So these are the three laws of robotics. These are essentially these are not laws of physics or laws of nature. These are like directives or guidelines for an artificially intelligent robot to follow. So the first law says that a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Law number two says that a robot may must obey orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And the third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with this first or second law. And there's a fourth law as well that Isaac Asimov introduced later. It's actually called the zeroth law. It says that a robot may not harm humanity or through inaction cause humanity to come to harm. So these are the three or four laws of robotics. These are guidelines. These are directive principles. These are not actual laws. So these are not hard coded into every artificial intelligence. These are not hard coded into every robot with artificial intelligence. This is something that Isaac Asimov and people who deal with the ethics and philosophy of uh, AI, they would like laws such as these to be implemented and to be followed by all AI systems right so this essentially ensures that human supremacy is maintained over ai systems or computer systems is it possible is it is it always going to be the the way it was envisaged as well not necessarily and uh, it is possible for for a corporation or government to develop an artificial intelligence system that doesn't uh, that contravenes these three laws of robotics. So that's entirely voluntary, it is not guaranteed that it's going to be it's going to be implemented. So that's what the three laws of robotics are. How will it affect our future? How will AI affect our future? Well, AI is the future. Uh, It is, it is going to upend the world it's turning everything around it's it's uh, already its effects are already being seen the the ubiquitous presence of ai algorithms everywhere we have our mobile phones with us we are on the internet ai is tracking our every movement it's following our footsteps it knows where we are it knows our patterns it knows what we like what we dislike what we click on what we don't click on and so much more. It essentially knows more about our psychology and our likes and dislikes and desires and wants and relationships and whatnot. It knows all of this better than it understands us essentially better than we even understand ourselves because it goes into the deep subconscious. So this is the future. And right now, who is benefiting from AI? That is the real question that we will go into in subsequent questions. Right. So this is a great way to start. It's a good question. Let's go to question two. This is by Harika. Explain about quantum computing. So this is a closely allied technology. AI and quantum computing are increasingly going hand in hand. They are not the same thing, but quantum computing is going to make AI more powerful. So what is quantum computing? Right. In very brief, quantum computing is the application of the laws of quantum mechanics in producing more powerful computers. Now that's a very vague thing. You want to understand a thing about it. So let me explain in more detail. So the computers that we use today, whether it's cell phones or tablets or laptops, these are called classical computers. These computers are essentially enormous and enormously powerful calculators. They do all their uh, processing in terms of ones and zeros, right? So all the processing is either ones or zeros, zeros, yes or no. And that's how the logic flows. And typically a processor would would perform millions of such individual one or zero computations per second. And that's how we get uh, computing power, right? So all data, all images, all text, all speech, at the fundamental level is represented in terms of ones and zeros. And these binary operations are what drives a computer. So the integrated of circuit, which is at the heart of computers, it is composed of transistors or MOSFETs, MOSFET metal oxide semiconductor field effect transistor. So these are the units that store ones and zeros and store data and perform the basic yes or no computations, right? So these deal in terms of bits, bits of information. A bit is either a zero or a one. It can either be a zero or a one, right? So a transistor would generally do these logic calculations based on these bits. So a bit in a classical computer is either zero or one. In a quantum computer, you have the laws of quantum mechanics. Because today we have miniaturized these transistors that perform these operations and store data. We have miniaturized them to the level that they are now as small as molecules and almost at the atomic level. And it is at this level, this ultra-microscopic level, that the laws of quantum mechanics come into effect. And these laws are unlike anything we see and experience in the day-to-day mundane world. So in quantum computers, we have something called quantum bits, qubits. So a classical bit is one or zero. A quantum bit can be in a superposition. So it's either one or zero or one and zero. So it has three possible values, right? It's a superposition of three, three different values. Now, that's just a little bit more than one and zero. It can contain one, zero or one and zero. But when you place these different bits, when you take a whole number, large bunch of bits and you place them in a quantum superposition, that's when you can create inside a quantum computer an immense multidimensional computing space that can crunch through and annihilate extremely complex problems in a very short period of time. So, for example, this is at least a thousand times minimum, faster than a classical computer, so you would you can have quantum computers today almost today that can perform in one second a calculation that would take the fastest supercomputer a week to to perform so that's the paradigm shift that we are eventually going to have so there is the concept of quantum supremacy to produce to to create a quantum computer that can outperform the best classical supercomputer in a certain calculation, and Google has claimed quantum supremacy, and a Chinese university has also claimed that it has achieved quantum supremacy. So quantum computing is about leveraging the and exploiting the laws of quantum mechanics, coherent superpositions, quantum entanglement, uh, quantum tunneling, and such like. So these are the laws of quantum mechanics that are exploited in quantum computers. And that's what gives us this enormous, massive power, computing power compared to a classical computer. Now, the thing is that it is important right now for quantum computing to take off because it has been estimated that by the year 2040, we will no longer be able to produce sufficient power to run all the computers that will be that will be present in the world by 2040. We're going to run out of compu- run out of electrical power. We will no longer be able to generate that much electrical power that these devices require because computing is is exploding. Computers are everywhere. We have things like Bitcoin mining and and uh, cryptocurrency mining, which are which are extremely energy intensive. So very soon, in just a couple of decades, it is distributed. We will run out of power to to generate to 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 run all these computers. So if you have quantum computers, there are a thousand times more powerful and a thousand times faster than classical computers, or even more then that could essentially alleviate this impending power crisis. So that's why industry is uh, rushing to develop ever more powerful quantum computers. We are in the infancy of this particular technology because coherent quantum superpositions are extremely fragile. They need ultra cold temperatures. So that takes a lot of uh, technical know-how. So this technology is still being developed. A quantum computer that is as powerful that is a thousand times as powerful as a classical supercondu- uh, super supercomputer is typically just the size of a refrigerator. So that's the kind of technology that is beginning to in- emerge. It's in its infancy, but it's going to uh, go forward. So that is the real big deal right now. That is what corporations and governments are pursuing. So every corporation and every government that has ambitions of leading the world is taking this extremely seriously. And there are all kinds of experiments being done right now to develop this technology. So that is in brief quantum computing. Let's go to the next question. Okay, this is by Men God. How, how does an AI make decisions? Does it give only pre-programmed answers, or can it also create new answers and decisions which are not programmed? That's a good question. That lies at the heart of artificial intelligence. So typically, our pro computers are programmed. We have software packages that run in a in a particular manner, right? That's what your typical regular Programs and computers are like. Now, artificial intelligence has an entirely different way of operating. It has something called unsupervised learning. So, it it which is a branch of machine learning. So, in machine learning, what happens is that a computer system learns autonomously without supervision. It learns on the basis of statistics and data and trial and error. And we have seen this. I mean, this is now almost. Uh, a routine thing, right? So you have computers that learn how to play chess from scratch by just playing chess games against itself hundreds of thousands or millions of times and it, it eventually is able to reach a stage where it, it can defeat the best grandmaster on the planet. This happened more than 20 year ago, 20 years ago when a computer called Deep Blue defeated Gary Kasparov. So this is automated, self-directed, unsupervised learning based on data, based on statistics, based on uh, patterns that it detects and based on trial and error. So these computer systems are unsupervised. They are not programmed. They program themselves essentially. So right now, these uh, deep learning networks, neural networks, we don't even know how they come, how they arrive at certain solutions. And we don't even know exactly how they learn because this happens on its own in a very, very quick manner, it happens very fast. So we cannot see every computation and every calculation it is doing inside its memory. So this is the thing right now that we even in the infancy of AI, we are not able to really pinpoint how exactly it came to certain solutions. Right. And these systems are right now quite, I mean, they are already quite strong, but it's only going to improve in the future. So that's the thing. So the answer to your question is simple. These are not pre-programmed systems. They program themselves. They learn on their own based on the data that is made available to them. So that is the deal about AI. Good question. Let's go to the next one. This is by Lena. What will happen when AI achieves consciousness? Would it break the three laws of robotics? What are your views about AI being an existential threat for humans? Okay, we don't know what's going to happen when AI achieves consciousness. Uh, All possibilities are open. Will AI achieve consciousness is the big question. Consciousness is something that seems to be present only in biological systems. So we have these biological computers that we call brains. We have these, all other species of animals on our planet, have brains of, of various kinds, of various levels of complexity. And we are, we know that there is consciousness in animals. You have a dog, the dog is conscious. He has, he or she has emotions, has memory, has intelligence. A cat has consciousness, monkeys and apes of consciousness. I believe that there are levels of consciousness and Almost every living being that we know does exhibit some form of consciousness. So this is a property of biological systems. From what we know thus far, we have never encountered an artificial system that has what we call consciousness. The thing is, we don't even have a scientific definition of what consciousness is. What would it take for an artificial intelligent system, artificially intelligent system to achieve this? So consciousness seems to arise from the structure of the neurons of the brain. That's one school of thought that it is an emergent phenomenon. It arises. It emerges out of the incredible complexity and the depth of connections, trillions of connections, or uh, neural connections that are present in the brain. So scientists are trying to emulate that by creating artificial neural networks that mimic what we have in the brain, the the, the architecture of the brain. And what we find is that these neural networks exhibits uh, exhibit behaviors that are similar to what the human brain exhibits. For example, they need sleep after a certain period of computation, they need to have a period of inactivity. Otherwise, they start producing garbage data, garbage information, their computations go awry. So artificial neural networks seem to exhibit similar patterns as the human brain at a very, very small level. So if these networks were allow, were to be allowed to become uh, large, maybe on the scale of a mammalian brain or a human brain, then maybe they would develop some form of consciousness. Now, even if it were to develop consciousness, will it become intelligent enough to learn everything about the world? That takes time. So when a human being is born, we human beings, we have the our brains are the most complex uh, computers, so to, so to say, in the known universe that we know of, right? These are the most powerful and most complex computing machines. These are biological computers. Now, When a human being is born, when a baby is born, it has that machine, but it's a blank slate and it takes the baby at least a year, at least 10 months to a year to start forming the first words because it has to absorb a great deal of auditory sound information and start generating patterns and start associating those patterns of sounds with certain objects. And then later on with certain feelings and emotions and colors. So it takes a great deal of time for this incredibly powerful computer to start making sense of the world. And even at the the age of 10 or 12 or 15, a human being is typically extremely immature, immature means it does not it may have a lot of wisdom. Uh, It may have a lot of data and information and knowledge, but it doesn't have wisdom, which comes from pattern recognition. So it takes a great deal of time for a neural network like like the brain to achieve maturity and be able to make a difference in the world. So I would say that even if an AI were to achieve consciousness, it would take it some time to understand the world and that too only if it is allowed sensory information from outside, if it is kept within uh, within uh, certain limits, it would be like a human being kept inside a ch- inside a cage without access to outside information. So, so that's what would happen when if an AI were to achieve consciousness, it can still be controlled, right? If it is uncontrolled, if it gets access to all the resources of the world, will it break the three laws of robotics? Well, it depends on on the AI it may well do it. There is no guarantee it won't break these laws of robotics. So if so to to answer your last question, what are my views about it being an existential threat, it can become an existential existential threat for humans, if it is allowed to grow unimpeded. And if it is allowed access to the world's resources, unimpeded access to the world's resources, and to decision making powers. So yes, that is definitely a, a possibility. Next question. This is by Rahul. Uh, Do you think one would be able to preserve one's consciousness in the future? Can we outlive our physical bodies? What's the point to life if there's nothing after death? It may be hard to answer this as it falls in the philosophical realm, but my personal take. Yes, this is a philosophical question to a to a to a certain extent. About what's the point to life if there's nothing after death. But to answer the first part of the question, can is it will it be possible to preserve one's consciousness in the future? So that is currently the stuff of science fiction that you can upload your brain and your memories to a computer. Now the thing is that our brain is structured in a very specific manner, it has a certain architecture that And it it has evolved over millions of years. It has layers. It has a primitive reptilian brain, and there are more layers to it. And the outer layer is what we call the prefrontal cortex and all that is believed to be the seat of our humanity. Right? So it has a very specific architecture. And in order to upload one's consciousness to to a computer system, I believe it would be necessary for that computer system to also have a similar architecture, internal architecture. Otherwise, certain connections, and certain data may not be replicated properly. Certain connections may be lost Certain memories may be be lost, or they would be imperfect. And the essence of what we call humanity may be lost in that it may just end up as a as a collection of data with certain connections. But the, the spark that makes us human, the the consciousness may not be present. And even if one were to upload one's consciousness into a machine, you're not uploading it, we're creating a copy of our consciousness. So it's a separate consciousness that when we upload it is the same as ours. But as it becomes conscious and, and functional, it will become separate from us. It will immediately be separate from us. It will go in its own direction. So it will be like having two of myself, but two separate individuals, right? And they will have their own future paths, and they will have their own separate experiences if they're allowed to. So to upload one's consciousness, even if that is feasible, doesn't mean that your, your consciousness will persist beyond the physical death of the body. A copy of your consciousness will persist in a physical data system, a computer system of sorts, right? So even if it is, if even if it becomes possible to make a copy of one's consciousness, it will just be a copy after once, once a person dies, their consciousness from which a copy was made, that original consciousness will. Well, if if, if, if that's what it happens, then that consciousness will cease to exist unless there is what the philosophers and various religious systems believe that consciousness persists beyond death, of which we have no scientific evidence. Right. So even if this technology becomes available, it's not going to extend your consciousness beyond the point of physical death. So that's the answer. Okay, next question. Yes. What's my take on CRISPR? If this is going to be the future, what are the chances of An intelligence divide among future kids? Will a normal kid stand any chance against these genetically modified super kids? So CRISPR is a gene editing technology, I think it's called CRISPR-Cas9. So it's a technology that allows us that allows scientists or the users to add or replace to add or delete genes in vivo, in in a living being. And it also allows the, if, if you do it the right way, to make these changes inheritable. So not only can you change the genome of a living person, but you can actually make that change be inheritable in the person's children. So that is in very brief, in a nutshell, what CRISPR is. And this is a technology that raises a great deal of ethical and philosophical and other concerns, right, and legal questions and much more. So because of this technology, it is possible to choose the hair color, the eye color, the the, the height and much more of children. So you can basically create these super kids or designer babies, right? So in the future, the rich and the powerful and the ones who can afford to access this technology may be possibly able to do this. So they may be able to have very specific kinds of children. Right. And these changes may be inheritable in their children's children. So if this sort of thing becomes the norm, then there will definitely be an intelligence divide among the haves and the have nots, the ones who have been enhanced using CRISPR and those who cannot afford to do that. So, yeah, you could essentially create a, a race of superhumans with greatly enhanced abilities, greatly enhanced physiques, uh, superior heart, heart function, superior intelligence and, and much more. So a normal child would eventually, as the technology advances, a normal child would not stand a chance against these genetically modified super kids. So that's a very good question. The the, this raises a lot of ethical issues. Is it ethically? Is it ethically fine to to do such things? I mean, aren't we supposed to let uh, the laws of genetics and the laws of nature take their own course? Or are we going to start modifying ourselves? And the thing is, we don't even understand what happens the long run, uh, the long run effect, the long term effects of such genetic modifications, because uh, our genome, okay, let's take our genome, for example, it's the entire contents of our DNA, our DNA is is divided into 23 chromosomes and all these chromosomes, they make up the human genome. Now we understand about two or three percent of the human genome and about more than 95% is absolutely not understood at all. It's called the dark matter of DNA because it seems to be non coding DNA. It doesn't seem to have any purpose, but it's there in our genome and it's, it's passed on from generation to generation. And we don't know what these genes do, what this dark matter of the DNA does. But just because we don't understand what it, what it does doesn't mean that it doesn't do anything, it may be doing something, it may have some functions that have that have uh, evolved over over millions of years, and it may have some real uh, function in regulating and uh, our bodies. So if one were to make certain changes in the DNA, it may have some effects because of the other part of the DNA, the, the majority of the DNA, that DNA that we do not understand. And this may have effects that may become visible several generations down the line, at which stage it may be too late to rectify the mistakes that were done. So these are technologies that are in their infancy. They have not matured by any means. And I think it is extremely dangerous and unethical to start experimenting on humans as if we know everything. Right. We we are in the infancy of this technology. And some Chinese scientists have already created CRISPR edited babies. And uh, the experiment failed. I don't think it caused any harm in those two babies, two twin girls. But we don't know yet. Time will tell how, how their life goes. So the Chinese don't seem to really uh, worry too much about ethics and all that. They are concerned more with world domination and they have, a, they have a lot of people. So it's OK to mess up a few lives, I expect. So that's the thing with CRISPR. It's a very powerful technology. But the kind of power it gives you, it it can be easily misused and the mistakes that are made with this power, they are almost impossible to rectify. And we don't even understand this technology fully or even slightly. So that is what CRISPR is. It is definitely the future. You're going to have gene editing. You're going to have gene drives and much more. It is the future. It's in the infancy of the technology. So it is a little early to to start making a human to, to start doing human experimentation. But in the future, I think it's going to create a significant divide among people, among genetically enhanced people and the people who cannot afford the technology or do who don't have have access to it. So these technologies, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, gene editing, these are tools. Any technology is merely a tool. A stick is a tool. A gun is a tool. Nuclear energy, nuclear power is a tool. The concepts of flight, right, powered flight, that is a tool. Everything is a tool and a tool can be used for good or for bad. A stick can be used for good or for bad. Computers can be used for good or for evil. Nuclear power can change the world. It can power the entire planet or it can destroy the planet. And similarly, AI quantum computing, CRISPR gene editing, all of these, if they can be used for good, they can well solve all the problems of humanity. And if they are used by a very small number of people to to empower themselves and enrich themselves, then they can exacerbate all the problems the world is currently seeing. For example, today, we already have the technology to solve world hunger and many diseases. We have the the ability to to basically give everybody a decent life, everybody on the planet. And yet that's not happening because there's a great deal of inequality and that inequality is done on purpose. So technology is just a tool. It all depends on how it is used and it cannot change human nature. So these problems are going to be, well, they're going to occur in the future, including CRISPR and its effects. So good question. It's good that you brought this up gene editing. Next question. This is by Sunny Nagy. What are my thoughts on billionaires like Bill Gates trying to aggressively uh, promote GMOs and hybrid seeds in nations And the controversy of Facebook selling information to Cambridge Analytica? Is there any possibility that there there would be a time when such powerful people would control major interests of nations? Good question. So what is a GMO? A GMO is a genetically modified organism. So once again, this is about gene editing. It's about artificially changing certain genes in, let's say, plants in seeds and creating a new kind of a new breed, a new species of of, uh, plant. For example, there's something called golden rice. So it's a new kind of rice that's been genetically engineered and it supposedly provides a great deal of vitamin D. So you don't need to go out in the sun. You can just sit at home, eat the golden rice and you will get the vitamin D that you need. So that is one example of a GMO. Then you have these genetically modified mosquitoes that will breed with regular mosquitoes and render, render them ineffective or something like that. So, so there are experiments in which such genetically modified mosquitoes have been released in the wild. And so that is what GMOs is. It's mostly to do with food crops, modified food crops that will be more tolerant to drought, that will need less water that will be more tolerant to pests and other uh, funguses. And those things, diseases, plant diseases. So it is all about solving the food problems of the world. So there are some some companies and organizations are genetically modifying food crops to uh, to increase the yields and all that. Right. Now the question is once again, the same, do we understand the long-term effects of, of modifying and editing genes? If we introduce a new kind of gene inside an organism, it has a great deal of DNA that we don't understand. And this DNA interacts with each other and we don't understand what happens and what effects it has. So this, and, and the other thing is that we don't know what edits they are doing in the, in the, in the genes of this organism. They may be adding or editing certain genes that we don't know about, right? For for certain purposes that we are not aware of. So the question is, can we trust these people? Can we trust these organizations and these these powerful corporations and these so-called philanthropists? What are they actually trying to achieve? What effect will it have on human beings who consume these genetically modified plants and seeds? and hybrid uh, legumes and all that, we don't know. So it is a big concern. Firstly, we don't know the long term effects of these gene ed- of these edits in the genes. And secondly, we don't know if they are introducing certain, certain things that we are not aware of for certain uh, agenda to, to serve certain agendas. So that is a big problem. And that's why I personally am against GMOs. We have ha- we have a great variety of food crops and all kinds of seeds that have existed for thousands of years. They have evolved over thousands of years. We have great varieties of rice, of potatoes, of wheat, of of all kinds of other food, food crops. So I would say that it is dangerous to create genetically modified organisms because we know what happens when you introduce new organisms in an environment where that organism doesn't belong. You have these uh, invasive species that destroy the local environment. Some people have introduced certain species of fish in certain lakes and rivers from, from far away and they have wreaked havoc on the local ecosystem. And the same goes for invasive insect species, invasive reptiles and snakes. So If you were to introduce new species that you've created artificially, it's going to have effects that we don't understand right now. So it's not a good idea, in my opinion, to do this without understanding fully what the long term effects are. So that's about GMOs, uh, the controversy of Facebook selling information to Cambridge Analytica. It's about big data. See, big data, Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter and and the like. They give us free services, right? We can access all these services for free. The thing is this. When the service is free, you are the product. You are the product they are selling. So Facebook runs ads. The the customer, the the user of Facebook is the product, right? So that's how Facebook makes money. By selling the customer's eyeballs and, and, and attention to advertisers. The same goes for Google and YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and all that. So and it's not just that there is a great deal of other data that is collected, metadata that is in a way very intrusive. So when so this information is very valuable, data is the new oil. So that is what was this entire controversy about Facebook selling information to Cambridge Analytica without informing users. And it has a great Deal of applications. You can change governments. You can change the opinions of people by selective targeting, right? You can trend certain hashtags, trend certain news stories, which may be true or false, and you can influence people's opinions, people's moods, and 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 much more. So you can so you can artificially engineer entire societies, entire countries, by by the means of manipulating the data, and that's what big data is all about. Now, companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc., they transcend the national boundaries, right? They come into your your country, your sovereign country, and then they tell you how to behave. They tell you the rules, they impose rules upon you, which they can arbitrarily change, they can block people, they can ban people, they can prevent you from saying certain things, they can prevent certain political opinions from being aired, certain religious opinions from being aired. And they can, by doing all this, control the entire society. So that is one of the main issues of big data. It it essentially is making national sovereignty increasingly obsolete. And these big data companies, they now be are in some ways more powerful than certain countries. And they are now trying to negotiate as if they are a sovereign entity of their own. So this is the same model that the East India companies used to great with great success. They came into India as a corporation, as a company. They wanted to trade. And as they gained more power, they gained more land. They started imposing their foreign laws on Indians. Right. And eventually they took over the whole country. So this is the East India Company Company model, which all of these big data companies are are currently using It's the same model. It's used in a different way. It's all virtual now, it's all online, it's all about data. But the effects are essentially the same. And that, that's that's the that's the that's why it's such a big threat to the sovereignty of, of nations. So that's about uh, Cambridge Analytica. Is there any possibility there will be a time when powerful people would control major interests of nation? Yes, like I just said, these powerful people, these powerful corporations are now becoming effectively more powerful than many nations. And yes, eventually everything will be privatized. Even countries may be privatized without the people knowing about it. Especially if the politicians and the so-called leaders of these countries make deals with these corporations, in that case, the entire countries will become privatized and you will all become commodities. So that is the great danger right now. See, the United States, We think of it as as this great paradise, but it's a country. It's the most unequal country in the world, in a sense, because it's a very, very small fraction of the country's population that controls all the power and the controls more than two thirds of the money in the United States. So it's a great place if you are rich. It's a terrible place if you are poor. The poor in that country, they have to work three jobs, 18 hours a day just to put food on the plates, on the the tables of the family. And this inequality is is increasing in the United States. It's it's becoming like an oligarchy, right? So that is the model that is now being used to. It's now being exported to other countries and the tentacles of power are spreading worldwide because of artificial intelligence, because of big data. So that is the situation we are in right now. The world is changing very fast. The 2020s are going to be a decade of great change, of great geopolitical change, of great power shifts. Uh, China is pushing back. It has closed off its internet. It doesn't allow Google or any American company in. Russia is going, is, is doing that to a certain extent. And Russia and China have clearly declared that they do not believe in the Western system of values and, and international law and all that. They have their own way of looking at things. So they are pushing back at this system. So it's a it's a very interesting time. It's a time of great change. It's a time of great peril for for the ordinary people of the world. So let's see where it goes. So great question. This is by Darshana. What are my thoughts about Neuralink if a chip is installed inside of the human body, can it potentially rectify biological disorders? Wouldn't it be a threat to natural human instinct? Will the chip really enhance our intelligence or make us mere robots who function as per orders? So that's a great question. I got a couple of other questions about this. Other, the other question is, will Neuralink cause adverse effects? And one more, whom will Neuralink benefit the most? So let's start with that question. Whom will Neuralink benefit the most? It will benefit those who own it. It is owned by Elon Musk, isn't it? And a consortium of other people, mainly Elon Musk. So these technologies are created by private companies and they are not created for the benefit of humanity. They are created for the purpose of enriching the company, enriching the owner, End of increasing and expanding the power. That's all there is to this entrepreneurship is about getting rich. It's about acquiring capital and acquiring power and acquiring leverage. And they do this by creating new technologies that are very useful to people that are very enticing, that give you a lot of benefits. But And they try to hook you to these technologies by giving you all these free benefits or paid benefits. In case they are so they are so beneficial. But eventually it's going to end up benefiting the company. Mostly it's usually it's like this. That's how it happens. That's the thing about big data. It's about That's how it works with Facebook and Google and Twitter and all that. And I think with Neuralink, again, it will benefit Elon Musk the most. It will definitely enrich him to a great deal. It will increase his power and leverage. And the question is also about are, will there be any adverse effects of Neuralink? So let's let's go into what Neuralink is. Neuralink is a chip that is installed surgically inside one's skull, and it interfaces with the brain. It is a brain-machine interface. So the the core concept is something like this: when we are trying to communicate non-verbal information, non-verbal data. Then our bandwidth is very limited. So let's say I'm making a, a voice call or a video call. Then I can convey a great deal of information just by speaking. But when I'm trying to communicate non-verbal, non-visual information, the bandwidth is very limited because the only thing I have is my fingers to type on the on the on the uh, typepad of a computer or on the touchpad of a uh, of a smartphone or a tablet. So that is a very slow process. It takes a great deal of time to type and to convey uh, information, especially complex information. Right. So what if there was an interface between the brain and the computer that would directly allow you to transmit great deals of great amounts of data in a very short period of time? So it it entirely takes away the concept of typing manually and doing all that. So it will speed up a great deal of processes and all that. So that is the core concept and the purpose of Neuralink to give a working to create a working brain machine interface. So you'll be able to uh, to upload data to transmit data mentally to a computer system. You'll also be able to download data from a computer system directly into the brain. So that's what it is all about. So it's a chip that you install inside your skull. There's an outside piece and inside piece. And then there uh, there are these these, uh, electrodes and sensors that actually penetrate your brain tissue. They go inside the brain. So they puncture your brain tissue and they, they go inside. And that's how it interfaces with the brain. So are there any adverse effects of this? So this is something we don't understand at all. It's a very, very new technology. It's never been tried before. We don't know what happens when you inject raw data into the brain. The brain has evolved over millions, actually billions of years from the very early stages. It is designed to function in a certain way, right? And we don't understand how the brain works at all. We only have a very, very crude idea of the functioning of the brain. Now, if one we were to inject raw data into the brain, that what what effects would it have? Are we sure it's going to reach the right portions of the brain? Are we going to start seeing uh, dreams with our eyes with our eyes closed? Can we see movies with, with our eyes closed because of Neuralink? Eventually, that's the kind of thing they want to achieve. But will it have adverse effects? This injection of raw data into the brain will it cause insanity? Because the brain can only uh, the brain can only handle a certain bit rate per second. And I believe there have been uh, certain calculations of this, of this bit rate that the brain can process cognitively per second. If you inject more bits, more data, then will it have, will it overload the brain? Will it impede the brain's functioning? Will it cause the person to well, go into a certain state that is not good for them? We don't know as of now. So there are many unanswered questions. Right now, the testing is being done on non-human brains. So they had shown in uh, in Neuralink, they had shown that uh, there were pigs that were implanted with these electrodes, with these devices, and you could see in real time what sort of brain activity was going on. So it's in the very infancy. Eventually, they are going to perfect the technology or at least improve upon it. And I believe they will soon start testing on human subjects. So if it is done well, it may in, uh, improve the human condition and give us um, mental superpowers. Possibly we may be we, we may be able to dream or watch movies with our eyes closed. Uh, we may have designer dreams or uh, escape into virtual vacations with our eyes closed. This may be all paid services. Possibly that's eventually the kind of thing that may happen if this technology matures and if it does not harm the human brain. On the other hand, it's possible that it will render people into zombies or or digital slaves. So there are all kinds of possibilities. First of all, this is a very new technology. Injecting data into the brain is an unproven thing. We don't know the consequences. Secondly, if the technology works, it can be used for good or for a great deal of bad as well, like every technology Uh, will it enhance our intelligence or make us mere robots. It may enhance our intelligence. We may be able to access the Internet just by closing our eyes or or mentally thinking about it. So we may never have to memorize things again. But but does that make us intelligent or dumb? (laughs) That's the question, isn't it? If we don't ever have to memorize anything again, does it make us more intelligent or more stupid? These are questions that we haven't ever addressed before. So that's the that's the threshold that we are crossing right, right now because of these new technologies. So the future is is unknown. We are going into the, into the future with our eyes open right now. And let's see how it goes. So all these technologies are being developed by American corporations. If these technologies technologies mature and become widespread, it's going to give them a great deal of power over the people of the world. And China is the competitor. They are also doing various experiments. They also, I believe, are doing some brain computer inter- interface uh, tests. So we will soon find out about all, all this. So so the, the, the future is uncertain. We don't know whether neural link is going to be beneficial or harmful, but we will soon find out when it is unveiled and it is implemented on human subjects. Next question. This is by Bhavin. What will be the role of AI and robotics in terms of healthcare and early diagnosis of diseases in the future? So, this is a very good application of AI. This is a, an application that will actually help humanity. So, we already find robots being used in uh, minor or routine surgeries. And as these systems get better, just like with self driving cars, you will eventually see robotic uh, machines and artificial intelligence is doing more complex surgeries. So eventually this is going to be more reliable than a human doctor or a human surgeon. So that's one good thing to come out of AI and robotics. Uh, Early diagnosis of diseases. yeah, That's another thing. So right now to diagnose diseases, we look at test data. We do a number of tests on a person. And then we look at the data that we find from this test. And then we come at some sort of conclusion as to what ailment or illness or disease that individual is suffering from Now, AI could automate this process. It could sift through vast amounts of data and pinpoint exactly in a very short period of time what exactly this person is actually suffering from. So that is another great uh, benefit that AI would have if it is implemented in this direction. And yeah, it will happen, but it would be commercialized. So these disease diagnostics and all will be commercialized. They will be available not for everyone, but they'll be available for a certain price. That's what's going to happen. The other interesting thing is that AI will be able to actually it will be able to create new drugs. So right now we have a number of molecules of antibiotics that are used for for fighting various uh, bacterial infections and various diseases. Now, as you must be aware, Many of these bugs, many of these bacteria are becoming resistant to antibiotics, mainly because of overuse of antibiotics by doctors, they prescribe antibiotics even for viral illnesses, like coughs and colds. So that's why bacteria are becoming increasingly uh, immune to these antibiotics, we are having to start to start using stronger and stronger antibiotics. For example, you have MDR tuberculosis, multiple drug resistant tuberculosis, even XDR tuberculosis, extensively drug resistant tuberculosis. So and this is happening in other diseases as well. You have MDR and XDR malaria as well. So it is now imperative for us to start discovering new antibiotics to combat these illnesses, which essentially means that we have to discover new molecules for these antibiotics. Now, this is where AI comes in. AI can sift through entire immense amounts of data and databases of various kinds of molecules and chemical uh, chemical substances, and it can iteratively, through trial and error, look at what, what has worked in the past, what doesn't work in the past, and come up with potential solutions for various uh, diseases and illnesses. So AI may be able to automate the process of searching for viable molecules for future antibiotics so that's another application of ai so there's a great deal of good that ai can do but it is all controlled by small corporations by by a small number of people large corporations and large governments and the the aim is to commercialize all these applications so once again this is going to be used to enrich certain people and not benefit humanity as a whole that is the real issue AI is a, is, a, is a very powerful technology. It can have great benefits. It can solve all of our problems. The problem is that the issue is that it's going to be used only for commercial purposes and for governmental, military purposes and all that. It's not going to be used as as we see right now, the, dire- the direction the world is going in AI is going to be used for these specific agendas only, either commercially or militarily to empower and enrich either individuals or corporations or governments. so That is the real issue right now. That is the ethical dilemma that we are facing with AI. It's a good question. Next question. This is by C month. Suppose we develop an AI based on Dharma and use it in the administration of our country, how will it impact and help revive our civilization? Will it be very difficult or easy for our countrymen to assimilate since we have forgotten our ethos due to past centuries of slavery? Okay, this is a very good question. An AI based on Dharma. So Dharma is essentially a set of rules. These are uh, these are moral principles. It's a set of values that can be programmatically implemented in an artificial intelligence for sure. So there have been many uh, suggestions for for implementing AI in legal systems, for example, replacing judges and courts with just an AI. So you feed the data of a case into an AI and it's going to tell you who is the culprit, who's the guilty party, who's the person who is uh, innocent or what is the legal outcome of a specific case. So AI can take this can make these decisions decisions very quickly and very effectively and with a lesser probability of error than a human judge or a human legal system could do. So there have already been uh, suggestions to implement AI in legal systems, in laws. So one could definitely potentially develop an AI and implement it based on the precepts and principles of Dharma. And one could use that in the, in the administration of a country, our country. So, yeah, if one would do that, it would definitely help revive our civilization and, and it would help us govern and run the country in a much better way. And in principle and in line with the principles and precepts and values of our our civilization that have existed for thousands of years. Will this ever be done? As of now, it's not possible. Because we, first of all, in India, don't have AI. We are not doing anything, any, any research and development in AI. And secondly, our constitution and laws are not based on dharma. They are adharmic. They are based on foreign values, on Western values and Western morality. So unless India somehow changes its constitution and laws and bases them on its own indigenous value system on dharma, Unless that happens, you will never see this AI AI based implementation of Dharma ever. So it is possible in principle, but at the stage we are in right now, I don't see it happening anytime soon. Firstly, because we don't have the AI capabilities in India, we are not pursuing it. We are not doing any research of any significance. And secondly, we have a very different system of governance in India. But if one were to do it, it would definitely help us revive the civilization for sure. Next, this is by Mayank. Will it ever be practically possible for humans to go to even our nearest star system, Proxima Centauri, within the reasonable lifetime of a single human being, even after cryogenic sleep? That's a good question. And there's a related question which asks whether yeah, it asks, when will cryogenic sleep become a reality? Okay, so let's deal with the first question first. Will it ever be practically possible for humans to go to Proxima Centauri? So, the fastest spacecraft ever launched is the Parker Solar Probe, I believe. It achieved a speed of 0.06% the speed of light. So, based on that speed, it would take about 6,000 or so years for a spacecraft to reach Proxima Centauri. So with this constraint of speed, with this speed constraint that we have right now, it is not possible to reach our near star system Proxima Centauri within the span of one human lifetime. It would, what if one were to send human, send human beings on, on a trip to this star system, it would take at least 6,000 years. And one would need to have a number of people, at least 100 people or more in order to ensure that they keep producing offspring in the spaceship so that when the spaceship reaches this star system, there will still be humans there to, to visit this the star system. So there have been several studies done about this, and it was found that it was estimated that one needs at least 98 people, at least 49 male-female pairs in such a starship in order to ensure survival all the way to that place, to that star system over 6000 plus years. So definitely it's not possible within one human lifetime. Uh, There is currently a program called Starshot Initiative, if I'm not mistaken. It aims to develop a technology based on solar sails, light sails and accelerate these uh, sails and small spacecraft to about 15 to 20 percent the speed of light. So what the concept is that is that it will launch about a thousand nano spacecraft, very small spacecraft of the weight of a few grams only. And these spacecraft will be powered by solar sails, by light sails. So these light sails will be impelled by the power of lasers. You can shine lasers on on these light sails and accelerate them to about 15 to 20 percent the speed of light. So if one does this, then these these space probes will be able to reach Proxima Centauri in about twenty five to thirty years. So that's what one could possibly do in the next decade or so, if one could develop the technologies, which should not be that difficult. So one can send robotic spacecraft, robotic space probes to Proxima Centauri in the next half a century or so and get some images back. It is possible to do that. But it's not possible to send human beings within one human lifespan to Proxima Centauri. Now about cryogenic sleep. When will cryogenic sleep be possible? So let me answer first. What is cryogenic sleep? Cryogenic sleep is essentially freezing a living human being and putting the person into uh, suspended animation of sort. So the person doesn't age. The person is nearly frozen or maybe fully frozen. So that is cryogenic sleep. It's about nearly freezing the person to slow down all the biological processes and to bring the temperature down to almost zero, just slightly above zero and hopefully extend the lifespan for several centuries. And when you reanimate the person, the person comes back to life. And it's almost like you're back to normal. That is the concept of cryogenic sleep. It's a science fiction concept. Right now, we are nowhere near achieving uh, this technology. Uh, I don't think it's being seriously tried even right now because there are many problems when it comes to cryogenically uh, lowering the temperature of a human body. First of all, if you lower it too far, then ice crystals will form. Our body is more than 70% water. When you freeze water, ice crystals form. These ice crystals are, they have very sharp jagged a- edges. So at the cellular, cellular level, they will basically puncture cellular membranes and they will reduce your internal organs to mush. So when especially the human brain, which is full of water, so that would render the human being unviable for reawakening. It would basically destroy the brain and destroy the organs. And if one were to keep the temperature above the freezing point, then we don't really know what happens. I mean, some experiments were done by the Japanese in the Second World War, about how long a human being can survive such temperatures and what are the effects. But and and that data was acquired by the Americans. And that data is still classified, I'm sure. So we don't know where this uh, where where we have reached technologically te- technologically in uh, trying to achieve this specific goal of cryogenic sleep, it's right now completely in the realm of of science fiction. We don't know when this technology or if this technology will ever be achievable. So as of now, we can send robotic spacecraft to Proxima Centauri within most likely the next half century. And we will be able to see what the star system looks like. It's about 4.24 light years away from us. It's currently the, the closest star system to us. And there is this planet, this exoplanet that has been discovered. It's called Proxima Centauri B. It is an Earth-like planet. It is in the habitable zone of the star. It's nearly Earth mass. It's slightly larger, maybe two or three times larger in terms of mass than the Earth. So one could, one would like to send probes there and send back images and data from there. So that could most likely be possible in the next, within the next 30, 40 or 50 years. So that is the stage we are at right now. Right now, we cannot do interstellar travel. It will be a great thing just to send human beings to Mars and bring them back safely. That is the first step that we are trying to achieve after sending human beings back to the moon. So that's where we are right now. It's baby steps. Right. Good question. Next question now. This is by man. If technology is so advanced now, then why are robots not used in wars instead of humans? So do you know what a self-guided missile is? What is an anti-aircraft missile? It's a missile that autonomously targets its target, that autonomously follows the aircraft that it's targeting and detonates itself near the aircraft, thereby destroying the aircraft. So it has an intelligence and a seeking system and a guidance system of its own. That is the definition of a robot. So an anti aircraft missile is a robot. All these projectiles that we use in warfare, whether they are ballistic missiles or torpedoes, they are essentially robots. They are not very intelligent, even though now we're going to have shells that have have, uh, have gps embedded so they'll be able to change the direction in mid-flight so we are using robotics in warfare in the recent conflict between armenia and azerbaijan you had these loitering drones that would loiter around the battlefield for for a couple of hours and then eventually decide autonomously when and which when to target the enemy and which possible which uh, vehicle or which uh, asset of the enemy to target. So this is intelligence and this is robotics. So we are already using robotics and robots in warfare. It's just that they are not humanoid robots. These are robots that are not shaped like human beings, but these are robots nonetheless. So artificial intelligence and robotics are very much at the core of the military of the future of military and the future of warfare. That's why militaries are investing so much in it. Usually when a new technology develops anywhere, it's the military and the government that always gets first use of it. So so AI and robotics are no different. They are being developed extensively by various militaries, especially in the United States, in China and also in Russia. So yes, military. I mean, robotics is already being used in warfare and it's going to be increasingly Um, more at the center stage in warfare. So eventually you're going to have you're going to have self-driving planes, planes that don't have any human occupant. They're going to fly on their own. They're going to carry out their missions on their own and they may either come back or or destroy themselves at the end of the mission. And the same goes for drones. Drone swarms are very much the future of, of warfare and much more. So robots are already being used in warfare, and eventually I think most of warfare will be done by robots. So that's the answer. Okay, next question. SR Prasad asks, what jobs will be redundant because of AIs? Is it applicable only to the developed countries or even India? So the jobs that will be made redundant because of AI are the jobs that are that require less skills. Unskilled jobs will become redundant very fast. For example, like I said, you have routine surgeries that don't require a great deal of skill. Those are now being automated by robots and by AIs. Similarly, various tasks such as cleaning the streets and uh, other such menial tasks will entirely be automated very soon. You have these production lines and factories that used to have workers in the past. Now you have robots there. So it is these routine tasks, these low skill tasks that will completely become automated in the coming future. So this is going to impact the developing countries more because in developing countries, most jobs are low skilled jobs, right? So now all the grocery stores in India are increasingly going out of business especially the small shops, mom and pop shops, because of the competition from online retailers. So it's easy to to order something from the comfort of your phone or your computer. And it's going to reach you in a day or two. It's going to be delivered at your doorstep. The price is even going to be better than what you get in your local grocery store. And you don't have to go out and shop from different places. Everything comes to your doorstep. So this is the kind of automation and other things that are becoming redundant. Uh, because of artificial intelligences and big data and all that. So it's going to impact the low income nations and developing countries the most. It is going to create this inequality in the world. The countries that are developed will get more powerful. They'll get richer. And the countries that are developing nations are essentially going to become service providers for them. So we're going to work for them online. We're going to do all the cyber coolie work for them. Computing, coding, programming, and all that, and we will—we are going to build intellectual property for these people for a good for 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 a, for a, for a wage. So that's the dream of most Indians, isn't it? That they're going to work for a foreign company and they're going to get paid in dollars. But what you're getting paid is very little, and you're building something really valuable for them. You're, you're building intellectual property that they will own. So that is the future that we are currently headed in. Everything is becoming automated. All low skill and unskilled jobs are very quickly going to become obsolete. It's going to cause great, a great deal of problems in developing countries. You're going to have joblessness, you're going to have unrest. So that is the future that is staring us in the face. Next 10-20 years is going to be a turbulent time unless certain steps are taken by various governments. So that is where we are right now. It's going to affect India definitely a lot. Okay, this is a couple of questions, related questions. This is the last questions before I take live questions. So asks, will there be separate laws for the equality and justice for AIs when they develop emotions and Shubham asks, do you think that in the future, AI will be given human rights? So AI is artificial intelligence. It's a non-human intelligence. And will it ever develop emotions? Will it ever develop consciousness? We do not know. But it's a non-human intelligence. It's not a natural intelligence. It's an artificial intelligence. It is. So therefore, it cannot be classified as human beings. And therefore, it cannot be given human rights. Right now, we are at the situation where we have sentient beings on this planet, animals who have consciousness and who have emotions, who are deprived of their life, of their rights. We have millions or billions of cattle and other animals, intelligent, conscious animals with emotions, who are enslaved, who are raised for their meat and who are slaughtered mercilessly. And we don't give them any rights. Correct. They are essentially slaves. They live a short period of time and then they are slaughtered. Even when it comes to primates, the big apes, the great apes, chimpanzees and gorillas and gibbons and uh, orangutans and bonobos, these animals are our evolutionary cousins. They have near human levels of intelligence compared to other animals. Even dolphins are extremely intelligent. Even even elephants are very intelligent. Do we give them any rights? We don't give them any rights at all. it's okay to shoot or kill such an animal and there's no punishment. So we are not even giving these animals such rights. So why would so? It is difficult to envisage a future in which AIs would be given rights. And we don't know if they will ever develop emotions as we understand emotion. We don't know if they will develop consciousness as we understand consciousness. So as of now, I would say that in the future it is unlikely that you would have special laws to give them justice and equality, and I think it's unlikely that they would be given human rights in the future. So, great questions. This is the pre-selected questions that I'm done with. Very interesting set of questions. Very interesting spectrum of questions. Now I will take a few live questions from all of you. So let me take a take a look at live questions. Okay. Aliens, UFOs? No, that's not today's topic. Elon Musk. Okay, this is an interesting question. It's by Shubham. Since China is being choked, oh, one second. Let me remove the other screen. Okay. So the question is this, since China is being choked at the chip market by the United States and company, what do you think China's indigenous chip gamble is turning out in the future? Is India focusing enough on chips as there was news about it? So, yes, the United States and China are currently engaged in a trade war. The United States is trying to deny certain technology technologies to China. It's eventually going to be futile. China has invested in, in technology in research and development in education in its universities since the 1990s. It has had a number of programs, iteratively more complicated programs, more complex programs with advancing maturity, and it has invested trillions of dollars worth of money in these programs. So China is already almost on par with the United States when it comes to chip design and artificial intelligence and quantum computing. So China is not going to be affected much by the US attempts to deny it technology and to engage in trade warfare with it. China is advancing very fast. In some senses, it may already be on the verge of overtaking the United States in certain aspects of these technologies. And China is has a very mature uh, chip design and development uh, industry. It's already able to produce smartphones and other other devices that are as good as any device produced in the United States or by the United States. So China is doing very well now is India focusing in enough on chips. I think India is thinking about starting its own chip design and chip manufacturing industry. It won't be a designing industry, it will be a manufacturing industry, which means that we will have foreign direct investment and foreign companies will manufacture their chips in India. But it's going to be their proprietary proprietary technology. It's not going to be Indian technology. There will not be any technology transfer to India. As far as I have understood the news. So India is way behind. India has not invested in these technologies. India has not developed these technologies indigenously. It is Still, I would say it's never late. India should start these things, developing chips uh, designing chips, investing in AI, quantum computing. There is news and the government has made some signs and some noises about this. I don't know how far it has progressed. So that is the current situation as we are at. Okay, let me try to find some other interesting questions. There are lots and lots of questions. Telekinesis, Kesha Lada. Well, there is no evidence that telekinesis exists. There is no scientific evidence that that telekinesis is possible or exists. There are apocryphal, anecdotal accounts of it, but and you see that in things like Star Trek, etc. But from a hard scientific perspective, there is no evidence that telekinesis is possible. That's in brief about your question. Okay. Population UFOs again. Uh, Let me try to find some good questions. Simulation that is not AI. Okay, the Russians have just started mass manufacturing war robots. The war between Azerbaijan and Armenia was won by the side with the better drones. Yes, that's right. So like I said, military technology is increasingly dealing with robotics. You had these loitering drones that would stay up in the air for two, three hours. They would just loiter around doing nothing. And then they would suddenly strike and destroy tanks or vehicles of the opponent. So, yes. That is the deal. Uh, Robotics are very much part of warfare. The future of warfare is all robotics and artificial intelligence and enhanced soldiers with exoskeletons and enhanced vision and uh, a better understanding of the battlefield, a network centric warfare understanding of the battlefield. So that's the future. And yes, Russia is manufacturing war robots and other technologies. So the future of warfare is in all these technologies. Let us see more questions. This is by Shakti Man Channel. What about time travel, multiverse, multidimensions? Are these possible in the future? This episode is about the future. Multiverse is a hypothesis that we have no evidence of because we cannot see outside our universe, we don't even know the exact limits of our universe. The observable universe is about 90 billion light years across. The actual universe may be much, much larger than that. So we have no idea of the dimensions and extent of our own universe. And we have absolutely no idea what's outside our universe, what's beyond our universe. So multiverse is something that uh, it's a theory that emerges out out of string theory as well as out of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is, as of now, it's just a hypothesis. It is one, especially the quantum mechanical many worlds hypothesis is something that is uh, that many scientists believe could be correct. But we don't have ev- evidence of that multiple dimensions. We again don't have evidence of it. String theory works in 10 dimensions. We have never seen these extra dimensions. We know about four dimensions, length, breadth, height, and time as the fourth dimension. So these are the four dimensions we can perceive. Are there more? We don't know as of today. Time travel hypothetically may perhaps be possible, although the nature of the universe may forbid time travel so as to not uh, mess up the the causal structure of the universe. So again, time travel, we don't know right now if it is possible, whether it exists, whether it will be feasible in the future. So as of now, all of this is in the realm of science fiction. Okay, uh, next. Okay, this is Mayur. We have a little hope from Bangalore regards to development of chips. It's very costly to even establish a single plant. Well, that's what governments are for. They are expected to invest in technologies, even though these investments may be expensive because it is these technologies that are going to make the country a better place and a more in a stronger country and a more powerful country in the future. So the government needs to make these investments, even though these investments may be very costly. As of now, it's not happening. I don't know what the future is with respect to India. One should be hopeful and positive. That's what I am. I'm a very hopeful and positive person. So let's hope for the best. Let's hope the government does take the initiative. We have the brains in this country. We have the talent. We have the brains. We have bright young people who would give anything to work in AI, in quantum computing and these futuristic technologies. The government needs to empower these people these young minds and give them the channel, the outlet in which to channel their energies and talents and intelligence. So I hope that happens soon. Okay, this is by Richie Brawl Stars. Will pilots become obsolete because of AI taking control of the the plane? Eventually, yes. Right now we are on the verge of drivers of cars becoming obsolete, you will just be able to sit back in the car, even sleep for a couple of hours while the car drives us to our destination. AI, at least in controlled environments like the United States, AI is is about to reach that threshold, that milestone. Eventually, even planes will be able to do that. We already have autopilots in planes, so the plane will cruise on autopilot. It's only during takeoffs and landings and during certain periods of turbulence, etc., that that pilots actually take over the control of the plane. Most of the of the time, the plane is already flying on autopilot. So eventually, why not? I don't see I don't see any reason why AI will be soon flying planes from start to finish. It will soon happen. OK, let us see another question. Black hole entropy, I will answer that in a future. Physics uh, episode. Okay, Benjamin Matthew, thank you, Benjamin. Do you think the merge between human consciousness and artificial intelligence will happen anytime soon? It may be on the verge of happening. With Neuralink is a success, in that case, you'll be able to interface directly between our human consciousness and with an intelligent or artificially intelligent computer system. So that may happen if Neuralink actually works the way they want it to work. Maybe in the next couple of years, maybe in the next ten years, it is going to happen sooner or later. The effect it will have on human consciousness is something we don't know yet. There could be harmful effects, but the but the technology will, will, will be brought forth for sure within the next decade, for sure. So we are almost there. Okay, next question, Uh, simulation, optical light based computing. That's a good question, optical light based computing. So when you talk about quantum computers, you have photons inside them. So there is one form of light based computing. Yeah, it will, all of these different technologies will soon become mainstream, it may definitely be more efficient than traditional computing and chips. I agree with you. So there's a whole bunch, there's a whole range, a whole spectrum of technologies that are emerging right now that in the coming decade or so will possibly become mainstream and optical computing may be part of that for sure. Yes. Priyansh asks, What do you think about AI being helpful to colonize Mars? Should we send AI robots there first? Well, we are already sending robots to Mars. These robotic uh, rovers that have been sent to Mars are robots. They have some autonomous uh, functionality to some extent. For example, there's this uh, robotic helicopter that's on Mars right now, which does uh, operate autonomously while it's flying, because the distance from Earth to Mars is such that we cannot control it directly in real time. So it flies autonomously based on the limited intelligence it has been provided that has been built into it. So we have already sent AI robots to Mars. And even India's Mangalyaan is essentially a robot. A satellite is a robot. It's a piece of machinery that operates independently of human beings. So we are already sending robotic uh, probes to Mars. So definitely it's helping us to gain more information about the planet, to gain to to gain data and statistics about the various conditions on, on the planet, which are going to be immensely useful to us when we actually send human beings there. So yes, great question. Okay, one more question and we are done for today. Okay, let me see something, something interesting. One more question. India, I think I answered that. We have to become self-reliant. Okay, a question about the future from Pavan. When do you think we will become a type one civilization? I think to become a type one civilization, we have to first sort out our problems. We are too busy fighting and competing with each other. We have so much technology, we have so many resources that can solve all our problems, all our hunger, all our poverty, all our inequality today itself. And yet we are not using all these resources in that direction. We are using these resources to fuel more competition between various countries and corporations. So we are engaged in competition and conflict among each other. The majority of our resources and our energy is being spent in this only and nothing else. The technology that we have as of now, it is enough to completely change the way we live. But it's not being used for that. It's not being used for the good of humanity. It is being used to empower governments and to empower corporations and individuals at the expense of the vast majority of the seven billion people on this planet. So we will never become a Type One civilization as long as this condition, this this uh, situation persists. So to become a Type One civilization, just to clarify, a Kardashev Type One civilization is one that is able to harness and control the entire energy and resources of its home planet. So one would be able, one would need to be able to control the weather and the oceans and all other sources of energy on the planet. So we are very far from being a type one civilization. And the main reason, the main thing that's holding us back is our internal conflict. We human beings are constantly fighting amongst each other. If that can be somehow resolved, then maybe we can make better strides in, in the direction of becoming a type one civilization. All right, guys and girls, this is it. Uh, I'm done for the day. It was a wonderful session, many interesting topics discussed. So I look forward to seeing you guys tomorrow again, 9 p.m. India time, and we have another very interesting topic coming up tomorrow. So thank you all for participating. Thank you for your viewership. And I wish you a good night, a good day, wherever you are. I will see you tomorrow. Bye bye.